Mojave Beach Productions. Beach Productions and the Voice of Halana bring you stories of faith and inspiration, made possible by the Forgiveness Foundation International. Evidence of God, told to you by the person who lived it, Esther Luttrell. Episode 2 The pain of loss is, it's always staggering, whether it's a parent or a sibling, a relative, a, a dear friend, but the pain of losing a child is almost beyond description. With my deep longing for family and home, it's little wonder I married blindly and much too young. I didn't know Arthur Riemann well enough, but it wouldn't have mattered. All I wanted was a home. That we were completely wrong for one another never entered my mind. I hadn't experienced the way a functional family operates, so I had no model to go by except what I saw in movies, and those always had a happy ending. Not that there was anything wrong with Art. There wasn't. He was a fine fellow. But he was as naive about the realities of life as I was. He, too, had a broken and dysfunctional background. When I finally left him, I explained that I was taking up a place in his life that should go to someone who could love him as he deserved to be loved. We didn't part friends, but... Years later, we reconnected, and I was relieved to find there was no animosity or hard feelings. I recognized him as someone I once knew, but I felt no more personal connection to him than I felt when we were married. It was my second marriage, two years after my divorce from Art, that blessed me with the birth of a beautiful little boy we named Todd. When I was a bulging eight and a half months pregnant, my husband's mother invited us to participate in a day of Bible study. It was taking place so some miles away. Church was an important part of my in-law's life, and of course we said yes. On the morning of the event, my mother-in-law asked if I'd drive my car and pick up two elderly women in their local church parking lot. The ladies wanted to go to Bible school, but had no means of transportation. My husband and his mother planned to go on ahead of us and help set up for the day's activities. Well, the white-haired women were waiting just where my mother-in-law said they'd be waiting, but there was a third person I wasn't expecting. In fact, there were two more people that no one had mentioned, a young woman and a little boy who was oh, maybe two years old. The older women climbed into the back seat, and the mother and her son sat up front with me. As we traveled along the highway headed for the Bible school in a neighboring town, 
the young woman and I struck up a conversation. I'm sure it started out with the usual, when is your baby due from her, and my reply that I had another two weeks or so to go if all went according to plan. I don't really remember how talk got around to her, sharing with me that she'd lost a child to crib death before the birth of the son in her arms. And I clearly recall my response. Oh my goodness, I'm so sorry. I don't think I could handle something like that. I wouldn't have the strength. And I clearly recall that she said in a soft, firm voice, yes, you would have the strength. Out of the entire 45-minute trip, that's all that stands out in my mind regarding our conversation. We arrived. The women went their various ways with the understanding that we'd meet back in the Bible school parking lot at the end of the day. And several hours later, we were making our return trip. As I pulled into the church parking lot to let everybody out, the young mother handed me a slip of paper. Here's my address, she said. If you ever have a moment, stop by. Well, I thanked her, and I said I would. Todd was born in November. I remember it was a clear, star-filled night, and what a beautiful child he was. You know, I adored him from the first moment I laid eyes on him. There was a connection that seemed, I don't know, somehow odd and yet natural. It was as if I'd known him forever. He was no stranger to me. Three months later, my husband accepted a job in a town oh, about 200 miles from where his parents lived. We'd been there a little less than a month when I heard a new radio station was about to open and I wondered if I might find a job with them. My husband was a professional with a nonprofit organization, which meant the salary was just barely enough for us to live on. A grandmotherly lady was recommended as a sitter for Todd for the hour I planned to be gone for the interview. We never left him with anybody before, but he was so good, so good-natured. I knew it would work out just fine. My husband came home from work over his noon hour and drove me to my appointment, and then less than an hour later we were on our way back home. What a delightful little boy, the babysitter exclaimed as she got her purse and was getting ready to go. I gave him his lunch and he just went down for a nap, but what a lovely disposition he has. Call on me anytime. I'd love to sit with him again. My husband was waiting to drive her home and then he planned to go back to work for the remainder of the afternoon. Once they were out of the house, I started for the bedroom. Not the tiny little square of space, it held our bed, a bureau, and Todd's crib tucked into the far right-hand corner. From the threshold, I could only see the solid end of the crib. I couldn't see inside it. But the vision that met my eyes as I stepped into the doorway was not one I'll ever forget. I saw translucent hands in a prayerful position reaching from somewhere beyond the ceiling, angled down toward the crib, and the hands glowed like luminous pearls, at least 15 feet long, and with palms pressed together, they were reaching down for my child. 
without stepping into the room and without even seeing Todd, I knew. And I whirled around and I raced through the living room and I threw open the screen door and our car was just pulling away from the curb when I screamed at the top of my lungs, Todd's dead. My precious God, let me see those shimmering hands. He let me know that Todd was with him, but he did even more than that. A week or so after the funeral, we returned to my mother-in-law's home for a weekend. It was a Saturday morning and we settled in, and I told my husband I was going to take the car and go visit the lady I'd driven to Bible school that day some months back. Her calm assurance that I would have strength to face crib death if I ever found myself in that situation meant so much during those difficult first days. Fortunately, I'd kept the scrap of paper on which she jotted down her address, and I recognized that it would be somewhere on the fringe of town. I knew the area fairly well, but I couldn't place that particular hundred block. Craning my neck and squinting at street signs, I cruised up and down the length of the small downtown area, but I didn't see the exact address I was looking for. There seemed to be no one on the street to ask, and of course, there was no such thing as GPS back then. Finally, I drove across railroad tracks. There was nothing over there except cornfields and an agricultural loading dock. That's where I spotted a man on a platform. And when I pulled up, he jumped down and he came to the car, and I showed him the piece of paper the young mother had given me. I don't know, he said, scratching his head. There ain't really no address like that around here. And he sort of squinted against the glare of the sun, and he pointed. Now, those numbers, that put the place smack in the middle of that field. And you can see, there ain't no houses anywhere around here. Sorry. When I got back to my in-laws, I asked my mother-in-law if she knew the woman I brought to Bible school, the one with the little boy. And she replied that she never saw her before, and she hadn't seen her since. She thought maybe the woman was a friend of mine. Well, the lady may not have been a friend in the strictest sense of the word, but she was definitely an angel who helped me get through some of the darkest days of my life. Much, and I mean much later, I found comfort in Matthew 19:14. But Jesus said, Let the little children come to me, and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. And before that, Matthew eighteen fourteen, So it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. Oh, it'd be a lie to say that I took it like a noble mother that I wept a bit and then turned it over to God, because, in fact, I did no such thing. My sorrow was so deep and my despair beyond consolation. I cried and I tiptoed around the house for months, trying not to wake up the baby, forgetting that the house was so quiet, not because Todd was napping, but because my baby was gone from earth forever. My heart was so heavy, I didn't see how I could go on 
despite the fact I was at peace in so, in so many other ways. I was grateful that God loved me enough that he let me see his precious hands reach for my child. He loved me so much that he waited to take Todd until I got home and I could witness the miracle of God's luminous hands coming through the bedroom ceiling to gather up his tiny son. But still, the ache was unbearable. I remember it was nearing Easter, and I knew it was going to be difficult to watch other children with their colored eggs and their brightly colored baskets. I'd be reminded of all the Easter's I'd have to face without Todd. I could think of only one thing that could ease the heartache. I had to do something for others, and fast. Well, we had almost no money. I mean, what could I do for others that would be meaningful when there was nothing to work with? I racked my brain, but nothing came to mind. Then one day I was driving back from, I don't know, somewhere, and I had to cross a very poor section of town. And it was there that the Salvation Army was headquartered. I didn't know that until I saw a sign on a little modest wooding building. And on impulse, I pulled to a stop and I went inside. And I had absolutely no idea why or what I planned to do. Well, I ended up sitting at a desk in front of a a really lovely man, identified by a plaque on his desk as Captain Moffat. At least, I hope I'm remembering his name correctly. In any case, I found myself telling him about the loss of my son within the last few days. And then I surprised the living daylights out of myself. I told him that I wanted to give an Easter party for the children of this particular neighborhood. You what? My mind was asking. But my mouth, it just kept right on working. How many children did the captain think might attend such an event? Well, he contemplated, let me see now. If we open it up to the neighborhood in general and not just the children of our members, oh no, I'd say maybe a hundred or so. <laughs> oh, I remember my matter-of-fact nod, and I also remember thinking, a hundred kids? I don't have a cent. Oh, what am I going to do now? But I left assuring the man that I'd start working on it right away. But I had no idea how such a thing was ever going to happen. And to make matters worse, Captain Moffat nearly clicked his heels with excitement when he realized construction of the new youth center would be completed by Easter. Why, we could give the party in there. <laughs> yeah. Of course we could, sure, mm-hmm, on my two dollars and fifteen cents. Now, let me think. One hundred children, two dollars and fifteen cents. Oh, man, what had I gotten myself into? Well, two days later I came to my senses and I realized I'd made promises I had no way of keeping. As much as I hated doing it, I didn't have any choice but to go back to Captain Moffat and admit my mistake. So I was crossing those railroad tracks again when I spotted a, <laughs> a huge cardboard sign tacked to the trunk of an oak tree. And in what looked like spray paint, it read, 
Easter party, exclamation mark. Everybody invited, exclamation mark. The place, date, and time appeared in neat letters along the bottom of the frayed edge. Now, I'd been worried enough about how to give treats to 100 children, but now everybody was invited. Oh, my Lord, dear heaven, what did I do and what to do? I went home in a, in a gloomy funk, but God was having none of that. He put it in my mind to call a local candy factory and ask if they'd like to donate chocolate bunnies for my extravaganza. So I did, and they would. <laughs> Glory be to God. He was planning a party whether I was in on it or not. Okay, so now I had several hundred chocolate bunnies pledged by the manufacturer, but I needed baskets. So I called Woolworths, not national or regional headquarters, but the one down at the mall, and I spoke to their manager. I told him I was giving a party for underprivileged children at the new Salvation Army Youth Center, and that such and such candy company was donating hundreds of chocolate bunnies. Would they consider providing Easter baskets? Without a moment's hesitation, the answer was yes. Where would I like them delivered? And on what date? I hung up just stunned. I mean, I was nobody. I knew no one in town other than my husband's boss and his wife. How did these people know I wasn't some kind of con artist? Why did they believe me? Who was I to ask all of this of people and groups who didn't know me? And they didn't even ask probing questions. Well, I put my doubts aside and I began to think about what the party would look like. How could I make it one of the best experiences these children had ever known? Eh, I won't bother you further with details, but, but this is the way it turned out. The local Eagle Scouts put on a dynamic program reciting the Lord's Prayer in Indian costumes and in sign language. The local PTA provided drinks for every one of the nearly 200 raggedy children who came to the Easter party on that wonderful spring evening. A costume storyteller from the library came and told spellbounding tales, while a lighting engineer provided color strobes and other ingenious effects that perfectly complemented the program. And the PTA also provided adult uh, chaperones. Um, and then the Girl Scouts, they acted as servers. With no chairs for that many people, everyone sat on the floor in a huge circle around the various entertainers, and every child got a chocolate bunny, every child got a basket, and every child left the party with a heart filled with happiness and the knowledge that they were loved. Maybe we don't always get the connection between the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ and an Easter basket. But on that afternoon, it came together for me. Strangers had given their time and poured out generous resources in order to give underprivileged children an evening filled with adventure and goodwill. And God showed me how to let him do all the work. 
And if that wasn't proof of the evidence of, of his existence, I don't know what is. And to think, it all came about because of Todd. What a blessing he, he was, even though he was only on earth for a little more than 90 days. Second Corinthians verse one chapter chapter one verse three and four Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies, and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our tribulation, that we may be able to comfort those who are in any trouble. Think about what you can do that you might not have thought of before. Something that will help others while not placing a financial or any other kind of burden on yourself. Think about it. I bet you there's something. Inheriting my earthly father's gypsy nature, or perhaps I just flat didn't know how to be traditional or how to handle anything having to do with establishing roots, I moved from the Midwest after my 10-year marriage to Todd's father, also ended in divorce. I'd been writing educational films and programs for regional cable TV. My first salary was a frozen turkey. <laughs> But I decided that what I really needed was an agent to help further my chances of earning a decent living. Now, mind you, the word career, it never entered my head. I just needed work. And the only thing I knew how to do was write. After all, I reasoned, anybody can write. You just pick up a pencil and you're in business. My business was much too small, and it barely kept me in pencils. So... I called ahead and I booked a motel room in Beverly Hills, California, which, according to my map, was an eighth of an inch from Hollywood, the place agents thrived, or so I was told. When I arrived at my destination, it was uh, late in the afternoon, and I pulled off of one of the main thoroughfares. I, I parked and I went in to register. Even as I made my way to an airy second-story corner unit, I knew the place wouldn't work for me. It was right on a noisy boulevard, and I needed quiet so I could write. Now, I have no idea what I thought I was going to write in the four days I planned to be in town, but I do recall that uh, having quiet was one of my major objectives. So I put my overnight case on the bed, and I went over to the window and and I looked down on more traffic than I realized was on the planet. And the racket of the passing cars and the impatient motorists just permeated the air. So ten minutes later, management cheerfully refunded my money and off I went. Once I was behind the wheel of my car, while still in the parking lot, I asked myself what I intended to do now. And myself had no idea. I didn't even know which way to drive to find Hollywood. Never mind why I didn't think about that when I made the motel reservation. But I was thinking about it now. Now, I can't read a map any better than I can read a Polish guidebook. 
It's all gibberish, and I've never gotten a hang of distinguishing north from south, east or west, except, of course, the sunrise and sunset. I do know the sun rises in the east and sets in the west, but where it is in between those two times, I have no clue. The sky looks all the same to me. So I sat in the parking lot, contemplating my situation. I had a teeny bit of money, an 11-year-old car, no sense of direction, and four days to find myself an agent. So I said, well, God, it's up to you. I'll start driving, and I'll listen for your directions. I'll follow my feelings, because I know that it will be you leading me. Thank you, Lord. I believe that God loves us just as much as he loves dolphins and whales. Both species are equipped with sonar that alerts them to an obstruction ahead. I mean, they're sailing along underwater when suddenly they get this little beep, beep that tells them to veer left or veer right to avoid calamity. But because whales and dolphins lack the argumentative nature of most of us human beings, they obligingly dart this way or that, and they continue uneventfully on their way. And I contend that we also get a beep-beep when we need God's directive. It's called that still, small voice inside us. Instinct, some may say. A hunch, others call it. And I call it a God nudge. And I trust it with all my being. Now, I'm driving along aimlessly along Santa Monica Boulevard when I felt a strong urge to turn left at a stop sign. So I turned left. And I continued driving until I felt a strong urge to turn to the right. Now I was on Hollywood Boulevard with no idea I was about to enter a place that can best be described as where the crime meets the grime. I understand it's been cleaned up some in recent years, but back then, it was flat-out terrible and dangerous. However, I trusted God's nudge completely. There was a wedge of land uh, just beyond the famous Man's Chinese Theater, you know, that's formerly Groman's, where stars have placed their hands and footprint and wet cement, I guess, going back to the 1930s. Anyway, this wedge of land held a liquor store and a tiny, tiny motel. And I thought, now, surely God didn't intend for me to go there. I mean, surely. Well, surely he did. The nudge I trusted felt like a gentle fist to my solar plexus. It was a sensation too strong to misinterpret, and it was leading me straight into a parking area behind that motel. Are you sure, God? I did ask. But as I asked, I was coming to a halt. And then I stared. A decidedly unglamorous lodging was in front of me. But God seemed sure. The proprietor was a lovely little Asian who greeted me with a big welcoming smile. I explained that I needed peace and quiet because I was a writer and I'd come to Hollywood in search of an agent. <laughs> yes, she agreed with an enthusiastic nod. You need me to iron dress for appointment? <laughs> well, that was more hospitality than I'd anticipated, but it was certainly welcome. For a tiny sum, about half of what I was paying at the other motel, 
she showed me to a clean room on the second floor. I think there were probably only six or seven units in the entire place. So she asked if there was anything else she could do for me. She accepted a dress that was crumpled from the trip, and she seemed thrilled to be able to participate in my little Hollywood adventure. I sat on the side of that immaculate bed, and I said a very humble, Thank you, precious God. The place was perfect, and everything was in divine order. You know, I love Proverbs chapter 3, verses 5 and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him, and He will make straight your paths. The point is that we have everything we need to make good decisions if we'll just trust that instinct, trust that it's God at work. We have every bit of knowledge we need in order to be in our rightful place. Unlike the wise dolphin and whale, we argue. We try to reason with God and we explain to him why this or that won't work. If I'd not trusted his direction, or if I'd not recognized God at work in my life, Things would have turned out quite differently. For one thing, if I used reason and not faith, I would not have ventured into Hollywood after seeing the condition of the place, and I would not have stopped at the modest little motel next to the liquor store, and I would not have been blessed to find an innkeeper who looked after me as if I were her daughter. Many other blessings followed during those remarkable four days, but I'll stop for now with the one story. If we will but trust the Lord with all our heart and all our soul, He'll never, ever let us down. He might not give us the answer we had in mind, but it will be better and it will be right. Lean not on our own understanding, but acknowledge Him, and He will make straight our path. When things turn out right, take the time to acknowledge God and to thank Him. Don't try to puzzle things out. Our life is in His hands, and He treasures us. It's His great pleasure to give us our dearest desire, so long as that desire is one intended for good and is based on our faith in Him. You know, we keep trying to deserve His love, but that isn't necessary. We deserved it from the moment we were born. It's just such a shame that we aren't taught these things as we're growing up. It saves us so many years of heartache, so much pain, as we learn our lessons the hard way. If only we were taught to say Mama and Dada and God all at the same time, just think how much easier our lives would be. Well, of course, the word God isn't enough. We need to be taught who and what. He is. I think the problem is that for the, for most of us, those uh, who's, who raised us didn't know either. I don't think they purposely kept the knowledge from us. I think they were so busy trying to figure out their own life and to handle their own problems that they didn't know to tell us about our real father, the one who never lets us down. Well, my parents didn't know. Most parents know, don't know. I know I didn't. Proverbs 
Chapter 3, Verses 5 and 6 Ah, again, trust in the Lord with all your heart, and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him, and He will make straight your paths. He will. You are listening to Evidence of God, brought to you by the Voice of Helona, made possible by the Forgiveness Foundation International. Well, it is true that I had a good job. The harsh reality is that I started at a rate usually reserved for interns or graduates straight out of college. Not that I wasn't grateful. And don't forget, I only had a ninth grade education. In truth, I was walking on clouds and I was thanking God every other breath for His divine protection and guidance. But I was facing yet another challenge, one that had no visible solution. We had no furniture. And we were moving into a two-story, two-bedroom place that may have been decorated by a French designer, but all he left behind was fabulous wallpaper and carpeting. There was nothing to stand against the wallpaper and nothing to go on top of the carpeting. So using the dolphin and the whale theory of God's love, one Saturday morning, I got in my car and I said aloud, All right, God, we're moving into the beautiful new place this afternoon and we don't even have a bed. So I thank you for guiding me to a place where I can buy all the furniture we need. Now, I had never established credit. My car was ancient, but I paid cash for it. And I paid cash for everything. I'd lost so much in my life. The idea of a bank or, or anyone else owning whatever I possessed and could take back at any moment, it terrified me. I knew better than go to a department store and ask for credit. I'd never get it. Better that I should just trust God to take me to the one place that would fill all our needs. And so I waited for the God nudge that would have me turn left at one corner and right at another and zig here and zag there, straight to whatever destination he had in mind. I'm, I'm driving along Van Nuys Boulevard, and I was alert to any internal indication of which way to go. As I cruised past a block-long, rather second-rate furniture outlet, I felt this tremendous punch to my midsection, and I squinted out the passenger window to a bleak place with the words House of Paul etched on a plate glass window. Oh no, I said to myself, that can't be right. I mean, it looked like an enclosed junkyard. So I kept going, and a feeling of dread, of wrongdoing, told me that I was making a mistake. Testing the accuracy of the punch to my insides, I drove back around the block, and sure enough, as I approached that outlet, I felt another wallop in my midsection, and this time it was unmistakable. I was shaking my head in disbelief as I pulled to the curb, and I parked, and I, I went inside. Sure enough, the place was little more than a, a gigantic warehouse. Every surface, every crevice was stacked with furniture of 
every description. A tall, nice-looking man in, oh, I don't know, maybe his 40s. I, I took him to be the proprietor. He was talking to a woman, so I sort of meandered around, looking things over. And to my surprise, upon closer inspection, I could see that most items were quite unique. They were in excellent shape and were just some of those one-of-a-kind things. Art Deco lamps, brass headboards, expensive dining room tables and matching chairs. They were all jammed among a mishmash of unremarkable odds and ends. It was really fascinating. Pretty soon, the tall man approached, and with a broad smile, he asked what he could do for me. And I introduced myself, and I explained that I was moving that very day into an empty condo, and I needed everything it took to furnish the place, living room, dining room, kitchen, two bedrooms and two baths, plus an eating area in a private patio off the dining room. And he said, well, walk around, show me what you have in mind. And I said, first, let me explain that I have no money, none. His expression sobered, yeah. I have a good job, though. His expression brightened. But I don't get paid a lot, at least not right away. He looked me over with such intensity, I wondered if he was going to ask me to leave. But instead, he took my elbow, and he turned me toward a section of the facility that held truly beautiful and unusual pieces. Explaining that he just received that particular lot from an estate, he said, So I'll tell you what I'll do. You make a list of what you need, and I'll go through here and I'll figure out what I can part with that I think you can afford. Can you pay anything down? <laughs> I shook my head. But I do get paid on Thursday. I could give you something then. He nodded again. If you can make three payments on three consecutive Thursdays, I'll deliver everything myself this afternoon. We set a three-installment fee that I could live with, and then he hurried on to take care of another customer while I pulled a notepad from my purse, and I began jotting down what turned out to be my wish list. When it was finished, I handed it to him with a little murmur of thanks, and I left. Can you even imagine my gratitude and my complete surprise when the man... Paul showed up that evening in a truck carrying two fine beds, two unique bureaus, an exquisite dining room table with six beautiful chairs, a break front, gold crushed velvet sofa, coffee and end table, several lamps, two gorgeous overstuffed chairs, a refrigerator and a stove. And he also brought us both a vanilla milkshake. <laughs> Oh, my goodness. Again, the Bible verse. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. Those words just race through my head. Without any struggle, without any worry on my part, my heart and soul looked only to God for answers. And he led me to someone who never took a credit application, never demanded an upfront fee, and who himself delivered the exact amount of furniture that was needed. God was really in evidence that Saturday. And God's in evidence every single day of our life or our entire life, if we'll only believe. And I thanked God, and I thank Jesus for showing me by example how to speak to my Heavenly Father. More importantly, Jesus taught me by his own way of living 
how to listen to my Heavenly Father. Ask for guidance with the absolute certainty your prayer will be answered. Thank God even before you see results. Trust and believe. Psalm 78, verse 72. With upright heart, he shepherded them and guided them with his skillful hands. Philippians 4.19 And my God will meet all your needs according to the riches of his glory in Jesus Christ. How many blessings can you count in your life? And as you list them, remember to thank God for them. How many times do we ask or even plead with God to reveal himself? I don't think there's a soul on earth who hasn't been in a situation that seemed so bleak, so impossible to resolve in a positive manner, that they haven't begged God to show himself and to fix whatever's broken. Of course, it's not unusual that once we get the outcome we prayed for, we thank the doctor or the neighbor or fate for right endings. And we become like the ten lepers healed by Jesus. Only one of them even thought to turn back and say thank you for his miracle. The rest of them went on their merry way. Maybe they were too excited to even think of saying thanks, or maybe they just thought they were having a really lucky day. (laughs) Who knows? I'm not a minister, a Bible student, or even always the person I want to be, but I have been given divine authority to share my experiences. Without doctrine to guide me, I came to realize at a fairly early age that Jesus was a man who came to earth to show us, literally show us, how to live by faith. He entered life as a newborn. He went through the same temptations and challenges that every one of us face in some form or other throughout our lifetime. He showed us how to live by example, not by words alone. He also showed us how he performed miracles, and he said that everything he accomplished was because of his relationship with his Father, who is also our Father. He assured us that everything he did, we can do too and more, if we will only believe. John chapter 14, verse 12. Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that believeth on me, The works that I do shall he do also, and greater works than these shall he do. In John 20, 29, the apostle states that Jesus once said to him, Have you believed because you've seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Of course, that's easier said than done. How do you believe in the unseen? If you remember... That was one of my most frequently asked questions as a child. Where is God? Who is God? I knew of his existence because I felt his presence, but I wanted so badly to hear or see a clear definition of who this marvelous God was and is. Later, I would become equally curious about Jesus. My questions then became, who is Jesus? Is he just a storybook character we sing about in Sunday school? Or is he something more? Is he like God? If Mary's his mother, how can God be his father? 
I knew the nativity story. I heard it. I even played it in elementary school. But I just didn't get it. What was the Jesus-God connection? Why do some churches claim that Jesus is God? And why do other ministers claim that we are God? Does that mean that we're also Jesus? I visited churches of most every denomination and faith, and I read books as extensively as I possibly could. And in the end, I only had more questions. By the time I reached a place in my life where I had a a great job and had a condo furnished through my Heavenly Father's good graces by the house of Paul, I knew this for certain. I knew that God exists. I knew that Jesus was sent to earth in the form of a human being who performed miracles. I knew he was sent to us by his Heavenly Father to take on the form of a man and guide us step by step to a life that was eternal. I've heard it said a thousand times that Jesus died for our sins, and it took years to finally understand that Jesus died so that we could learn to live in a way that was without sin, and that if we had lived a thoroughly evil life, if we prayed for forgiveness and we meant it, we would be forgiven. In order to make that point and to demonstrate uh, by faith that you will not die, but will live forever He had to perish in the most horrific way imaginable. It had to be a way so dramatic it would never be forgotten. How God must love us to let his beloved child go through such agony solely for our benefit. What truly amazes me is how God is evident in things that seemed almost insignificant, at least when compared with the needs of the world today. You know, each morning I made the drive from the condo to my job, listening to a particular minister on the radio. I wasn't impressed by his message, but oh, I could listen to that man sing forever. So I toot along in my little Volksbug, and I was singing hymns with the radio preacher. By that time, I was production coordinator on a TV show. I don't know if you remember it. It's been a long time ago. It's called Chips, and that was filmed on the MGM a lot. After 10 years as a single mom, I had begun dating the location manager, Larry Luttrell. And one day, standing by my desk, he said, what happened to your little fingers? Well, that kind of startled me, and I held up my hands. The son of a gun. I'd never noticed that before. Both of my little fingers were gnarled and so bent that they were pressed into my palms. And I was really astonished. (laughs) It was like looking at the hands of a stranger I shook my head and I said, gee, uh, I don't know. But it was obvious they were suffering some kind of advanced arthritic condition. They didn't hurt, and I suppose I didn't use them all that much or it would have probably come to my attention sooner. There was hardly any typing associated with my job, and, and I'd never been one to indulge in manicure, so it was easy to see how the pitiful condition of my pinkies escaped my notice. From that time on, every morning when I drove to the studio, I glanced at my hands on the steering wheel and I'd say out loud, Well, these are God's little fingers, and he's free to do with them as he chooses. And I'd kiss each of them, and then I'd put them out of my mind until the next morning when I'd repeat that ritual. Uh, Here's the part I think most of us find difficult. Praying over something and then truly releasing the problem. We cannot pray with faith 
but follow it with worry. It's, it's like there's one designated spot inside us that can only contain one image at a time, not two. It will hold faith or it will hold doubt. It's impossible for it to hold both at once. So I opt for faith. I never said, oh, Lord, please heal these ugly little fingers or, oh, Lord, I'll go to church every Sunday for the rest of my life and donate Saturdays serving dinner at the mission if you'll only restore my pretty little pinkies till their upright state. Nope, never. Healing or no healing, those were God's fingers, not mine, and he could do with them as he liked. I had a trump card, however, and I knew it. I even depended on it. God is perfection. If he is the father I believed him to be, and if I am truly his child, then I could only inherit perfection. He created me in his likeness, so those little fingers just had to be perfect. Well, time went by, and one day Larry made the remark, What happened to your little fingers? (laughs) Excuse me? What's this, Groundhog Day, the movie? Didn't we already have this conversation? I held up my hands and I spread my fingers wide apart. And sure enough, my little fingers were perfectly straight. There wasn't a bump or a gnarl on either of them. And again, in my busyness, I'd fail to notice. When I kissed them each morning, my hands were, you know, doubled into a kind of fist. You know how they are when you grip the steering wheel. So I hadn't actually seen them in any other position. And I didn't realize they really were arrow straight. I don't even know how long they'd been that way. I do know that I felt the same sensation I would feel years later when a huge man stepped out from behind a pillar in a dark subway station to show me that God answers prayer, if we truly believe he can, and that we truly believe he will answer us if we don't throw stumbling blocks in his way with our doubt and worry. Why is it that we pray Lord, heal us. And then we run right out and tell our friends how bad our condition has gotten. I think one of the most dangerous things we do, at least to ourselves, is stake a claim on a negative circumstance. How many people have you heard declare in a a no-nonsense voice that they have this or they have that wrong with them? And it becomes like an affirmation. I have this and you can't take it away from me. It's mine. People talk to me when I'm sick. They care about me and ask how I'm feeling. And if I got well, well, they might not care any longer. That happens more often than we realize. And what I had to learn to accept was that every time we are adamant in stating we have this or we have that condition, we're impressing our subconscious to hang on to it. And we're giving God no wiggle room to do his work. In fact, we're canceling out his help. Here, God, take it, we pray. And then we say to ourselves, oh, I I hope he can heal it, but my mother had it, or my brother had this condition, or it runs in the family, you know. In other words, it's mine. I deserve it. I earned it, and I'm not giving it up no matter how many prayers I open up in a day. I can outdo and undo prayers with my negative follow-up two to one any day of the week. Whenever I hear somebody say they have anything less than perfection, I ask myself why they want it. Declaring a malady gives it a home. Why should it ever leave when it's accepted so passionately and is reinforced with every conversation? 
if we would only remember that our body is God's temple. He created it. No matter what earthly condition befalls it, it always belongs to God. If we will step out of his way, he will take care of his own. When, when Dean and I first arrived in Hollywood, before I was hired by MGM, I applied for a job at CBS, and I actually got it. But did I accept my good fortune graciously? Of course not. Nope. I stewed and I fretted, and I was positive the network had made a mistake. After all, it wouldn't be long before they realized what a disappointment I was sure to be. I was still struggling with the negative tape that had been playing ever since my father walked away. I'd go for long periods thinking I'd mastered the art of forgive and forget, but the forget part that was sticking like glue. As soon as I was offered any kind of opportunity, that tape would rear its ugly head and growl, you can't do that. You're not smart enough. You're not good enough to do that. You're a disappointment. You'll always fail. I was sick and disgusted with that stupid tape, but I didn't seem to be able to permanently erase it. The day before I was to begin my job, I awoke with absolutely no vision. That's true. At first, I was confused. I couldn't imagine what happened. I'd never had eye problems in my life. I didn't even wear glasses, so what was going on? I called a dean in his bedroom and I asked him to go get a neighbor I knew who lived on the first floor. And when the two of them came back, they looked up um, an optometrist in the phone book. And they called and they explained the emergency. And we were told to come right in. The neighbor drove us there and uh, came in while the doctor examined my sightless eyes. When he had finished, he said to Dean and to our friend, Well, the vision in her left eye might return. The damage doesn't look that extensive, but her right eye is beyond help. She's lost all vision in that eye. With Dean on one side of me and the neighbor on the other, I was taken back to the car, then up to our apartment again. And, and I told Dean to go on to school, and, and I promised the neighbor that I'd call if I needed his help. But frankly, I wanted to be alone. I had a lot of heavy thinking to do. I had no income. I'd never accepted child support. I would probably have had to go to court to enforce it anyway. But our situation meant that I was the sole breadwinner. Dean was 14 and eager to find some kind of job to help out. But he hadn't had a chance to do that yet. He was busy getting settled in his new school. So alone that day, I lay on the couch and I tried to reason out my predicament. I just wouldn't accept that I was blind, even in one eye. I was made in God's perfect image, and that was that. What was called for were answers to a few tough questions. They were questions I had to ask myself. What is it? You're so afraid of, Esther. What is it you think you can't face? What is it you don't want to see? And the answer wasn't all that complicated. I was divorced, again, and I hated being divorced. But the mistake had been in my choices in the first place. Those marriages couldn't have been resolved. I was in my wrong place in both instances, when I ask a minister how God could ever forgive me for divorcing, 
and I reminded him that what God had put together no man should put asunder. I love his reply. He said, I'm not convinced God did put those marriages together. I think they were man-made mistakes, not God's mistakes. You exercised your free will and you made a human error. God understands that and God forgives. Well, perhaps God did understand, but I had to wonder why I kept making such terrible choices. Did I want a home so much that I failed to take into consideration what constitutes a home? Like, for instance, two mature adults? Was I not wanting to face a job with a major network that almost anybody would consider a dream position? Did I fear that I would fail and be a disappointment to my employer? Or did I just not want to see the chaos that seemed to follow in my wake? I admitted to God and to myself that that was the case. I just couldn't bear to see what a mess I seemed to be making of my life and Dean's. And once I looked at my situation clearly, once I faced the absolute truth, I knew I was healed. I went to sleep that night thanking God for perfect vision. And I confessed that any malady I suffered was of my own doing. And I promised to accept my blessing of good health. I forgave myself for divorce and for bad choices, for clinging to old hurts, and for an unrealistic and damaging poor self-image. I accepted my inheritance of intelligence and my place on earth as God's beloved child, and I thanked him for the opportunity that lay ahead in my new job. As I embraced God's healing power, I put any suggestions of limitation out of my mind, and once again, I acknowledged the evidence of God in my life. Faith that God can heal is critical. When two blind men begged Jesus to heal them, Jesus asked us they believed he had the ability to do such a thing. Yea, Lord, they replied. And Jesus said unto them, do you remember this? He said, according to your faith, be it unto you. And their eyes were opened. Well, someplace else he said, uh, by your faith you are healed. Over and over, Jesus gives his Father the credit for healing. In John chapter 5, 19, Verily, verily, I say unto you, the Son can do nothing of himself but what he seeth the Father do. For what things soever he doeth, these also doeth the Son likewise. How much clearer can it be than that? Jesus said that he could do nothing of himself, only that which he has seen his Father do. And then he adds the most important assurance. He tells us in verse 20, For the Father loveth the Son, and showeth him all things that himself doeth, and he will show him greater works than these, that ye may marvel. Because the Father so loved his Son, God showed him where great works were possible, and he granted his Son the power to do great works as well. So, just what does that mean? We are God's children too, and Jesus said, what I do, you can do and more. Break that down even further, and the simple truth is that what God can do, Jesus can do. What Jesus can do, we can do. 
Jesus turned to his Father for the power to heal those who ask. Following in Jesus' footsteps, we turn to our Father for healing. In verses of 22 and 23, John continues, For the Father judgeth no man, but hath committed all judgment unto the Son, that all men should honor the Son, even as they honor the Father. He that honoreth not the Son, honoreth not the Father, which hath sent him. God granted Jesus the right to judge each of us for himself. God trusts Jesus' judgment. So if we love and honor Jesus, and in his name we ask to be healed, because we do believe with all our heart that Jesus has the power to heal, he will judge rightly and will grant our prayer. Whether the healing involves finances or relationships or health, it doesn't matter what the issue. When you turn to God for divine guidance, add the words, This we ask in Jesus' name. God sent his Son to show us how to live, how to pray, how to accept our good. Jesus is our example. He is our living user's manual. It took years and years of mistakes, which I'm still making. But at least they're new mistakes. They're not the same old ones. Anyway, before I learned how to pray, it took much longer than if I'd grown up in a church environment, but God had been very patient, and he has shown me over and again how it works. And just recently, I came across, across a Bible verse that I wish I had known back then, Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 11. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. In Proverbs uh, 4, 20 through 22, My son, pay attention to what I say. Turn your ear to my words. Do not let them out of your sight. Keep them within your heart, for they are life to those who find them and health to one's whole body. Think about this. What physical, mental, or spiritual condition are you willing to let go of and turn over to God today. You've been listening to Mojave Beach Productions and the Voice of Helona's presentation of Evidence of God, Episode 2, told to you by the person who lived it, Esther Luttrell, based on her book by the same title. The Voice of Helona's theme was composed and performed by David Renda of Fesleyan Studios, and your producer was Patrick McGranahan. Funding for this program was made possible by the Forgiveness Foundation International, a nonprofit organization dedicated to the support of all aspects of forgiveness in families, communities, businesses, and personal relationships. Visit their website at ForgivenessFoundationInternational.com. Mojave Beach Productions.
This is Jack Diamond inviting you to soar on the wings of imagination to Mojave Beach Productions' world of audio entertainment. want to take a moment to thank you for soaring with us on the wings of imagination as you listen to stories we're having so much fun creating for you. If you enjoy what you hear, take a moment to subscribe to Mojave Beach Productions on your favorite podcast app. And thanks a million. <laughs> 